Boker Tov. Shalom Aleichem, everybody. Welcome to the Aliyah Day, our daily Torah study. It is a uh, new week, a new time, a new Sidra, as we are getting into uh, the, the Parasha of Vayera. Last week's Parasha concluded with um, Hashem appearing to Avraham, giving him the covenant between the parts. It's where we had the first mention of Lapid and the uh, Torah. And then it concluded with uh, the covenant of, of bris milah, of uh, circumcision. And so um, we have Avra, Avram, whose name has been changed to Avraham, the, um, the bris, the circumcision has occurred. And now indeed, in the fullness, uh, Avraham has become uh, one new man. We learned in last parasha the famous verse that Hashem believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And uh, while that's certainly true, uh, Abraham believed God, <clears throat> it's important to point out that the proof is in the proverbial, uh, proverbial uh, pudding, so to speak, in as much as uh, Abraham believed God, yes, but his belief had to be proven out vis-a-vis his obedience to Hashem's will. So uh, I wanted to point that out because, as many of you know, it's been uh, mentioned that, uh, taken out of context, I guess you'd say, uh, people say, well, all you have to have is faith, and that's, that's all you have to have. Um, it's not really true, actually. Um, the just shall live by faith. Sure, um, that's that's obviously true, but our faith has to have some type of action behind it. And really, something that Hashem has been teaching me personally over the last year, and I've, with God's help, tried to relate it to you, and that is the concept of bitakon. That means trust or reliance. Our faith... And by the way, those two terms clearly are related, faith and bitakon, but, um, but they also have a distinct difference. It is possible to have, bit, to have amuna, to have faith, but not to have bitakon, to have reliance. And my estimation, in my opinion, faith is the foundation Bitcoin is putting the faith into action. Really not my, just my opinion. It's also pretty much the definition. Because Bitcoin requires us to act upon our faith. And that's really what we have in Avraham Avinu. He had to act upon his faith. Bitcoin requires that. How many of us would say, and don't raise your hand. We don't want the rest of the class to see you. <laughs> But how many of you would say that it's true that there's times when I, I said in my, in my mind, I confess with my mouth that I trusted God, but really when the circumstance, when I was in the middle of the circumstance, I was fearful, I was, worry, I was worrisome, um, I, I, just, I really didn't trust God. And I, I'm, I'm saying that I trust God. 
But in reality, I did not really trust God. And I think that all of us could say that, that that's true to one degree or another in our life. And so Abraham trusted God. He believed in God. But it wasn't just belief in God. He trusted God. And Hashem accredited that to him as righteousness. Why? Now, why would it say that God accredited that to him as righteousness before he did anything? Well, I mean, it's not, that's not really accurate. Abraham had done quite many things in obedience to the divine will. But really what we're talking about here ultimately is the sacrifice of his son. That was really the, the climax of the ten tests of Abraham. But, but going back to the original thought, why would Hashem say, hey, he believed me and I credited him as righteousness. Now, why would God say that when, in fact, we haven't yet had the big test? And of course, the answer is that Hashem sees the end from the beginning. He already saw the choice that Abraham was going to make. Okay. And therefore, it was accredited to him as righteous. But it is a mistake to believe. And this is really the crux of, of the lesson as we're looking at the life of Avram Avinu. The crux of the issue is it is a mistake for us to think that all we have to do is believe. That all we have to do is say something. Like I trust God. Hashem is calling us, my peeps, to a whole new level. Uh, we have to really trust God. And, we, and, and by the way, this requires exercise. And this is why obedience is so important, because our obedience to the law of God is our daily exercise of bitakon. And uh, I was having a wonderful conversation with a lovely person yesterday who was just introduced to this wonderful Lapid Judaism. And this person was talking about some, some, some mitzvah keeping that, that they felt like would be challenging for them. They weren't opposed to it. They were just listening to the mitzvot and thinking, oh gosh, that, okay, that would be a little bit difficult for me because of their life circumstances or whatever. They didn't say they couldn't do it. They just said it would require some personal adjustments and some challenges. And yet, the, this person who is willing to do that, even though it will require some life changes, require some adjustments, maybe even re will involve some uncomfortableness, they'll, they'll have to get used to something, right? They're doing it because it's not the will of men. They're not doing it because it's just some, some doctrine of some religious organization, but they're doing it because it's the will of the Father. That, ladies and gentlemen, is bitakon. That is emuna in action. It's one thing to say, oh, I believe God. I have faith in God. I believe Him for my salvation. Okay, well, do X, Y, and Z. Ah, not sure I can do that. What, that is a lack of trust. And trust is putting your faith in action. Ladies and gentlemen, putting your faith in action is circumcising yourself with a flint knife at 99 years old. Okay? <laughs> By the way, the word uh, that's used for the, the flesh of the foreskin, interestingly enough, 
is the word orla. I think it's interesting to point out that the word orla uh, is also the word that is used in the Torah for uh, forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit. Um, this is um, also indicative of the fact that in the book of Ezekiel, it talks about that it says, in your blood live, in your blood live. And the ancient rabbis, the ancient sages, said, why does it say, in your blood live, in your blood live twice? Well, and the answer for this is because there's two bloods by which we live. Now, everybody knows that it's the blood of the Lamb, ultimately, by which we live. The blood of Mashiach Yeshua, the atonement, um, the Akidah, the final Akidah, etc., etc., etc. Now, there's actually... The, the lamb gives us freedom, the, the blood of the goat gives us uh, atonement, but, but anyway, the blood of the lamb, okay? And it was a, it was a lamb that was sacrificed uh, in the morning and the evening, but it's the blood of the lamb. Now, that blood is significant. It's a, it's a lot of blood, unfortunately. The, 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 the literal lamb has to um, be slain. And... Uh, the, the amount of blood that comes from such a sacrifice is significant. But what's the other blood? The other blood is the blood of circumcision. Now, the circumcision of a baby, or even an adult male, the adult male I, I presume would be a bit more, but the circumcision blood is uh, minuscule. It's minuscule, certainly in comparison to the blood of the lamb. It's not even comparative. Uh, it's the blood of circumcision basically fills a gauze pad. Maybe. Perhaps. Certainly not on, a, on an infant, but maybe on an adult, perhaps. Uh, a, the blood of a lamb fills a five-gallon pail. Uh, something to that effect. The point is, is that in comparison, one doesn't even compare to the other. And yet, Hashem demands our blood. It's like someone who says, look, I need you to purchase, or to be involved, let's say, in the purchase of this exquisite diamond, this uh, pink panther diamond. So I need you to dig down in your pocket and pull out everything you got. So we reach into our wallet and we pull out a hundred dollars or a hundred euro or a hundred pounds or whatever currency you happen to deal with in your precious wonderful country. We put that on the table the, 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 the diamond is priceless. It's worth hundreds of millions, maybe even billions. Our pathetic little hundred bucks or hundred euro, hundred pounds doesn't even... What, what is that? Now Hashem is going to give us the diamond because he's going to pay the rest of the bill. Why does he require our little hundred? 
or if you're in Jamaica, Ondred. Why does he require that? That's circumcision. That's our obedience. Because to us, it's a big deal. To us, our little gauze pad of blood is meaningful. And for one thing, it's not the entire answer, but for one thing, we appreciate what we're involved in, ladies and gentlemen. Never forget that. This is why renters typically don't take very good care of their, the house that they're renting. Because it's not theirs. It's, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not their monkey, it's not their circus. So what? They have no responsibility other than paying the rent. Other than that, there's no responsibility. Something breaks, it's, it's, the, it's the landlord's problem. Something needs to be repainted, that's the landlord's problem. They move out, they just grit their stuff and leave. Who cares if the carpet's ruined? Who cares if the dishwasher's broken? It's not their problem. Worst thing that could happen, they may not get some or all of their uh, deposit back. But other than that, whatever. But when it's your house, you're concerned about every little thing about it. Hashem wants us to be your house. He wants you to be involved. This is why, on the one hand, salvation is, not a, is a free gift. and the other hand, it's really bad to think of it that way. Because we never appreciate that which is free. We just don't. We don't appreciate that which is free. We appreciate that that we had to work for. And remember, you say, well, how can I work for it? You can't. You're the $100 to the, to the Pink Panther Diamond. You're the gauze pad to the pail. You can't work for anything. But God still requires our obedience. And uh, this is what it talks about in scripture and also uh, ancient literature when it talks about our meriting something. We can't really merit it. But nevertheless, we require to do something. Parashavayera, remember the word Sidra, is the same thing as Parasha, begins in chapter 18 of the book of Breshis, the book of Genesis. It starts out, Vayera Elav Adonai Beeloni Memri Vehu Yeshev Betak Hachel Kahom Hayom. Hashem appeared to him in the plains of memory while he was sitting at the entrance of the tent in the heat of the day. Now, I just want to point out that many commentaries, most commentaries, will say, uh, they kind of do some some gymnastics here, because in Judaism there was this belief that's been codified by Rambam that Hashem has no corporal form, corp he has no image. Now, I actually have a publication um, in my my uh, library that points out that that. Rambam's view has been adopted over the course of the centuries uh, by Yiddishkeit. However, in Rambam's day, there were many, many prominent rabbis who disagreed with him vehemently. That in fact, Hashem could manifest in a physical form, has manifested in a physical form, and has some type of physical form. Um, 
And, of course, we know that to be true because uh, when the Midrash Rabbah brings down that when Hashem created Adam HaRishon, that he looked so much like God, the angels tried to worship him. Now, if Adam HaRishon, uh, if the angels are trying to worship him, it implies, infers, insinuates that he has some type of physical form. Also, God never said he didn't have a physical form. He said, just don't make a physical form of me. It's a big difference. But the scripture makes it clear here, because there are some commentaries that say that this is actually, there were three angels that appeared to Abraham, that Hashem himself did not appear to Abraham, but, but the plain reading of the text is very clear. Vayera elav Adonai. Hashem appeared be'elene memory in the plains of memory. Ve'hu yeshiv petach ochauhel to to while he was at the the entrance of his tent. Be'hu am chayom in the heat of the day. Hashem appeared to Avraham at his tent. He lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing over him. So the, the flow of the verse, this is where they say, well, Hashem appeared to him, but then there was three other men walking. But in reality, the flow of the verse is pretty simple. Hashem, is, it's the Torah is bringing down here that Hashem is the one who appeared, and Abraham notices these three men. So it's Hashem and, three, Hashem and two angels. This becomes clear later when it's the dialogue of Sodom, the, the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah come up. But the point I'm trying to make here is that this is Hashem and two angels that are sitting with Avram Avinu, or, 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 or who, who um, come to see, uh, to visit Avram Avinu. He lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing over him. He perceived, so he ran towards them from the end of the tent and bowed towards the ground. Now, um, he's just been circumcised. He is recovering from his circumcision. And Avra, excuse me, Hashem and two angels come to visit him, and uh, some say that one of the angels was Raphael. Raphael is a is a name that means healer or God heals, and uh, one of the missions of the two angels was to come. In the case of Raphael, who's one of the archangels, was to come and to bring a refuah shneima, a complete healing, to Avraham Avinu. And uh, this also, as the sages bring down, why it's important for us as Jews to visit the sick. The sages say that whenever we visit a sick person, we bring one sixtieth of uh, health and healing to that person. Visiting the sick uh, is a very important thing to do. And it goes on to say, and he ran and said, My Lord, if I find favor in your eyes, please pass not away from your servant. Now, one of the reasons why Avraham Avinu was so apt to run out and greet passerbyers, because this was his mission. He wanted to bring people into the covenant. He longed to bring people into the covenant. He did not necessarily know, at first anyway, that these were divine visitors. But he suspected initially that they were just simply uh, wayfarers, and he wanted to bring them in and to uh, encourage them to, um, to come into the covenant. It says, Let some water be brought and wash your feet and recline beneath the tree. I will fetch a morsel of bread that you may sustain yourself, then go on, inasmuch as you have passed your servant's way. And they said, Do so just as you have said. 
So Abraham hastened to the tent to Sarah and said, Hurry, three sayers of meal, fine flour, knead, and make cakes. Then Abraham ran to the cattle, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the youth and hurried to prepare it. He took cream and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed these before them. He stood over them beneath the tree and they ate. Now, we're, we're going to get into some other insights here in just, just a quick second, but let me say that this passage is brought up very often <clears throat> by people who object to the Torah law that we must separate meat and milk. Now, I don't want to dive too deep into this, but I want to make two or three things clear. Number one, the separation of meat and dairy for kosher is not, please repeat after me, say not, it is not a quote-unquote rabbinic tradition. That is a myth that has been propagated by non-Jewish people, particularly in the Messianic circles, for as long as I can remember. It is not, say not again, not a rabbinic tradition. It is and has been considered a matter of Torah law, written Torah law, not oral law, written Torah law for thousands of years. It is understood thus to be so in every Jewish sect to include the Reformed Jews who don't even eat kosher generally. It's even believed to be so by, or was, I should say was, by the Samaritans who were kind of quasi-Jewish. They also separated meat and dairy because it's Torah law. That's number one. People say, well, if that's the case, then how come he served meat and dairy together to the angels? And I would say, tongue-in-cheek, the next time you have dinner with Hashem and two angels literally in your house, like in literal physical form, then be sure to ser serve them meat and dairy together. It's no problem. Otherwise, don't do it. <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek. Uh, but in reality, in truth... Um, uh, they did not serve meat and dairy together, number one. And I go into length about this in my, my sure that I did on this topic, um, so I don't want to belabor the point, but, but basically um, it says here that he ran to get, to basically find a calf and to have the calf slaughtered and prepared for supper. Now in ancient Eastern, Middle Eastern custom, you don't leave your guests just sitting there with nothing give them like an appetizer and so um, the milk and curds and the bread is intended to be an appetizer because those things are prepared and served quickly from hoof to plate it would take many hours to bring the the calf to the dinner table from hoof to plate is a long long process so uh, they did not serve it together in addition to that, Jewish law, halacha, stipulates that even if you had soft cheese, like, like milk and curds, which is basically just soft cheese, uh, you could, uh, the, the waiting period between that and meat is an, a half an hour to an hour. Usually it's an hour. Some communities say half an hour. 
You rinse your mouth and you are able to have meat. If it's hard cheese, it's different. This is ancient Jewish law. There's a time factor wait, waiting between meat and dairy meals. So even if they were going to serve the, the, the if there was some miraculous way that they were able to get a, a, a steak from the hoof to the plate in some miraculous time frame, um, then there's a, the waiting period is very, very short between milk and curds and meat. So basically that's it. There, I, I, there's just no way you could get a calf from hoof to plate outside of several hours because uh, you have to drain the blood, you have to butcher it, you have to cook it, you have to serve it. And in the meantime, they're eating curds and milk. So that's why uh, that's that. And then on top of all of that, if that's not enough for you, you can't take one obscure event, even if everything I said wasn't true, which it is true, but just for the sake of argument. If, if you just ignore everything I said and pretend like I didn't say it, you can't take one obscure event, especially when it involves Hashem and two angels literally in the flesh sitting down with you for dinner. You can't take that one thing and eliminate the rest of Torah law. People try to do that a lot with different things, right? Um, like when Hashem allegedly told Noah, you can just eat whatever you want, which is that's not what he said to him. But in any case, let's just for the sake of argument say that. When if Noah allegedly said, you can eat whatever you want, then God comes back later and two whole chapters of the Torah tells us you can't eat whatever you want. And people try to go back and say, well, he told Noah, you can't ignore what daddy said to us based on one obscure little passage. Don't do that, right? Because really what you're really trying to do, and this is really, I think this is where we have to be honest with ourselves. At this point, we're not really looking for truth. We're looking for loopholes. And there's a difference. There's a difference between looking for truth and looking for loopholes. Most people, when we do things like this, we're just looking for loopholes. We're trying to figure out a way to have our cheeseburger. We don't really care if it's true or not. We just want a cheeseburger, and so we're looking for a way to have a cheeseburger. That's really what it amounts to. Because I've had, I've gone through this type of thing with people, and at the end of the day, they're like, you know what, I just can't stop eating cheeseburgers. And I'm like, you know what, why didn't you say that in the beginning? Why do we have to go through all of this exercise and answer all of you? Why wouldn't you just tell me, Rabbi, I'm addicted to cheeseburgers? And then we can deal with that. Don't let your stomach be your God. We can deal with that at this point. Instead of dealing with this, this pretending to look for truth. Just be honest and say, I'm addicted. I have, a, I have a, you know, I, my stomach is my God. I'm a, and, and look, I, that's not a put down. There's plenty of people. There's, there's all kinds of addictions. People are addicted to all kinds of things. Pornography, drugs. People are addicted to anger. They're addicted to drilling, drilling and rush. Some people are addicted to food. If that's you, admit it and what we can do with it. And... Uh, Listen, I'm, I'm serious about that because uh, it's plenty of people have that problem. They're addicted. Food is very much an identity for people. It was for me. For a long time, food was my identity. I was a, you know, uh, I liked, I, you know, I talk about Cajun eating. That wasn't the only one, but that's a lot. I, I, to me, it was like who I, I, I identify with that, it's, you know. Took a little while for me to break to break out of that that uh, issue. So let's look at a couple of other uh, insights here. Hashem appeared to him, 
Abraham had just carried out the act of circumcision, it says here. He feared lest this sign of the covenant prove to be a barrier between him and others. Again, this is illustrative of the, the heart of Avraham, that he just wanted to be able to reach people. We have to understand that. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is a real danger when we become Torah observant, and I've seen it happen, to become insulary, to become closed-minded, to try to distance ourselves from those who are not keeping Torah. That is not the way of Avraham Avinu. Okay? We can live a Torah life and we can stay strong in our principles and at the same time we can be um, open to people. We can be approachable to people. And Abraham wanted to be approachable. He was concerned that Briss would create a barrier. So it says, And so God appeared to him to make him understand that even if circumcision alienated him from men, it brought Abraham still closer to him and made him worthy of receiving a visit from God, who came to inquire about his health. Now, but this new dignity meant increasing responsibilities. That's the other thing we have to understand, that our adherence to the covenant means responsibilities. Many of us, many people, it's human nature, we want the benefit without the responsibility. Try to avoid that in your psyche. You want to have the benefit. The only way to get the benefit is to have the responsibility. Jobs come with benefits, but you have to do the job. No company is going to give you the benefits when you're not doing the work. So God is, has lots of benefits for us, but we have to be employed in his service. So it says, by entering into the covenant, Abraham became the father of a multitude of nations. That is, invested with a moral responsibility towards the nations as an older brother does towards his younger brother. This is why the Torah calls them B'nai Kavori, the firstborn son among the children of God. So, so no sooner had Abraham entered into the covenant than he made himself aware of his paternal role. Indeed, it says, the revelation, whose main ob object was to visit the sick, solemnly announces the fate in store for the city of Sodom and its inhabitants. So all those circumcised and now distinguished from his contemporaries, Abraham had to remain aware and concerned for the people around him. Their fate, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, directly concerned him. He can no more remain indifferent to their destiny than a father can ignore the fate of his children. Father, we, ladies and gentlemen, we have to be uh, concerned about the people around us. There's too many believers that have become, I guess you'd call it, perhaps fatalistic is the right word. Maybe that's not the right adjective. But in any case, uh, they, they, they long for Armageddon. They long for the... The the rapture, whatever you want to call, you know, the, these people, things that people believe in, they 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 long for the the great war of Gog and Magog because they're just sick to death of all these wicked people in the world, and they're ready to just get the he double hockey sticks out of here and just let these people just be burned in the lake of fire, and we can just go on to the 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 uh, uh, 
you know, the good old uh, I'll fly away thing. We can't have that mentality. We need to... Um, we need to care. We need to care in our hearts. And if we don't care, we need God to help us care, cause us to care. We need to pray for people. We need to be concerned because Abraham was concerned. Sodom and Gomorrah was a hot mess. It was, it was, it was just mess. It was a mess. It was a evil, wicked place. It would have been very easy for Abraham to say, hey, they've been evil for a long time. But he didn't. He cared. It says their fate directly concerned him. He can no more remain indifferent to their destiny than a father can ignore the fate of his children. Later, the sages would declare, if you see, and this is, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this. Listen to this, because it all starts with us. Listen to what it says. The sages said this in, in Shabbos 139a in the Talmud. If you see a greatly troubled generation, go forth and examine the acts of the judges of the Jewish people. For all retribution that comes to the world comes only on account of the judges of the Jewish people. See, we like to think that all of the wickedness in the world has nothing to do with us. That we're just being perfectly righteous and everything is awesome and they're the problem and sigh, get us out of here. But in reality, the reason the world is so messed up is because we're not teaching and doing the right things in our houses of worship. It starts with us. If we want to see a revival in our city, if we want to see a revival in our state, in our, in our country, we've got to have a revival, first of all, here. We can't change the world, but we can change us through, of course, the power of God. And when we change us, we will, in effect, change the world. So the revival has to start with us, and then we will see a revival in our community. Too often we're trying to change the community, but we ourselves are not changed. God says it doesn't work that way. In fact, I had to change Abraham. In fact, I changed him so much he went from Avram to Avraham. He went from uncircumcised to circumcised. He went from idolater to progenitor of the one true faith. I had to change him so that the world could be changed. Think good and it will be good. Todah Rabbah for being with me today. It has been a blessing to be with you. Thank you so much for all of your prayers and all of your support. Please remember to donate and give to Sar Shalom Synagogue. Many of you have been doing that. Uh, some of you have called the office and, and given in person, uh, talking to Keturah. And uh, it's just, it's so wonderful and it's so appreciative. I'm so appreciated. I am so appreciative of everything that you do and your generosity because um, it's just been, it's been encouraging. When you give, it sends us not just a financial blessing to keep uh, things going, but it, it does way more than that. It actually uh, is a real shot in the arm. It's just a, it's just a good, it's such a meaningful 
act of support. You know, prayers uh, are so appreciated, and giving just shows that people are really there and it really uh, in solidarity with us. And so it's so appreciated, and it just it really here and you know among the office, it just gives all of us just such encouragement. So thank you so much for that. I appreciate your support. May God bless you in that. May we return it to you a thousand times. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow as we dive further into Vieira and see what Hashem wants to show us. Shalom Aleichem. We look forward to seeing you then.